Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the DOGS program. We are the defenders of government schools. We are the D-O-G-S, defenders of government schools. Um, We do it because we have to. Um, In all good conscience, someone needs to, and that someone is us. Um, It's you too, if you're listening, um, because here on 3CR, a commitment to community, um, the state school system of Australia is the greatest institution that we have in this country to the community of this country. Because a state school accepts anyone at the door. A state school does not care what colour your skin is. A state school does not care what religion your parents are. A state school does not care if your auntie is gay before they enrol you. They just don't. And so, much like 3CR itself, community radio, accepting of all people from all around the world, they don't ask the questions. They just go, what's your commitment here at 3CR? They don't say, who are you? They say, what's your commitment? The same goes for a state school. Children, being educated, the most important task a nation can have to develop our most important resource, which is in fact our people. The heart of that is the state school, something we here defend because it is being attacked, literally attacked. It's attacked by several forces. It's attacked by the forces of aggressive capitalism, and it's attacked in Australia for some particular strange reason now for many generations by forces that are religious in nature. There are religious people in Australia who do not care for the state school system. In fact, they do not care so much for it that they do not care to have their children go to it. So there are now in Australia government-funded religious schools um, which care about lots of things at the moment. If you look at the legislation, which we spoke about last week and I'm sure we will again, they care about lots of things. They care about your religion before they let you through the door. And they do definitely care if your auntie is gay um, because that will affect how you are treated by, by that school, in fact, whether you're let through the door in the first place. Um, to this end, we are discussing a number of things in our defence of education. Firstly, of course, will be our press release, which is always here when Jean is here. Our um, press release from to 825, is it, Jean? Correct. And um, Jean was struggling over, over what to call this press release because it deals with, strangely enough, the Bridget McKenzie matter, which is all to do with pork barrelling around Australia. But we'll also be talking about public education and its philosophy. And having a book review, um, Dale will be taking us through a new book that's been written by Diane Ravitch over in America about the problems of public education over there because not only does Australia have problems in terms of defending our education system but it's a universal and international matter. But um, 
we have that and more actually coming up in the program today on the dogs. But we will start, as always, with Jean's press release. Yes, um, you're right. I was wondering what to call it. Uh, I was wondering whether to call it the fox watching over the chickens or the hen house. Or I was thinking perhaps about the alchemist in the treasury, but um, I think the consensus was that was a little bit esoteric. Um, An alchemist um, being, of course, a person who turns coal into gold. Uh, And there are, I think there's still a little bit of gold in the Australian treasury. I'm not certain about that. But um, that goes back to Newton, who was a great, uh, a very interesting uh, physicist and um, mathematician but he was also an alchemist and he was in the British Treasury there for a while Mm. interesting Mm -hmm. anyway this is about Auditor General's reports and funding rorts otherwise called the fox watching over the hen house now in recent days if you've been listening to the ABC or reading some of the mainstream media you would have noticed that the Australian citizenry have, thanks to the Auditor-General in Canberra and our media, we've been exposed exposed to the blatant pork barrelling of sports grants by the Coalition in the weeks just before the last election. And after a week of embarrassing headlines about Bridget McKenzie, the sports minister who was responsible for this pork barrelling, apparently, and further revelations about her gun club membership and a mere 36,000 grant to this particular club that she belonged to. Finally, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, referred Bridget McKenzie's handling of the controversial sports grant scheme to an internal investigation which, of course, is the fox watching over the hen house. Now, the Auditor-General's scathing report involved 100 million community sport infrastructure grant programs that were handed out to key electorates just before the election. It was very blatant. But does this mean that the checks and the balances in our fragile democratic system are still working? And the Auditor-General and the Parliamentary Committee reports still actually mean something because the media are at least informing them about it. And after a lot of, um, of coverage, uh, the Minister, the Prime Minister, perhaps might do something, although whether it will work is a quite a different matter. But dogs note that they might mean something when it comes to this 100 million community sport infrastructure program, but they mean zilch when it comes to the billions and billions of dollars of state aid to private schools in Australia. In the last decade, there have been at least three reports from state and federal auditor-generals on the lack of accountability for public funds expended by the Catholic education systems and the other systems, particularly the Seventh-day Adventist system and the private schools of this country. But as far as the government concerned, it appears to be business as usual. But consider the following. 
First of all, going backwards, in 2009, in February, the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit of the Parliament slammed the Commonwealth Department of Education for failing to ensure the government funding of private systems was distributed according to the needs-based principles. It's been obvious to everyone for a long time that although we're supposed to have a needs policy in Australia, we don't. We have a greeds policy with the private schools. They're not giving the money to the poor schools and the disadvantaged children are mainly in public schools anyway. And this was a bipartisan report which was tabled in Parliament and they commit, they criticised the lack of transparency and accountability about school funding caused by inadequate administrative arrangements. And the Joint Committee, in, fact, in effect, was endorsing the findings of an audit office report from 2017, which was called Monitoring the Impact of Australian School Funding. And this Auditor-General's report back in 2017, and the dogs would have told you about it two or three years ago, this found that the Department of Education had failed to enforce its own legislation by failing to ensure that First of all, school systems fundings arrangements were publicly available and transparent. You can't get them. Secondly, the school systems distribute the taxpayer funding to affiliated schools on a needs basis. There's a lot of evidence that they're not doing this. And above all, the progress of the agreed national reform directions was adequately monitored. Now, it's actually the job of the Federal Department of Education or the Department of Education in the States to do this, but uh, it is government policy around Australia to have a hands-off private schools policy. Now, the Audit Office, this is in Canberra, had previously found that only two of 25 private school systems had published their needs-based funding arrangements, while seven of the eight state departments had done so for public schools. And there were very, very large variations between the systems that did report on public expenditure, and some have been diverting considerable funding to their own administration. The proportion devoted to central administration ranged between 0.1% and 18.9% of total recurrent funding with a value between $100,000 and $30.7 million. This is to administration, to a centralised administration. The uh, state school systems are forever being accused of being centralised but the most centralised system in Australia is the Catholic education system and they would have diverted a substantial amount of this $30.7 million to their administration. They are actually very effective lobbying groups. And so we have, this is public money. We have no way of knowing where that goes. No. And there's no legal way to find out. Well, uh, there should be, but um, they are self-regulating. Oh, okay. The problems of accountability. Yeah, no, they've, and just, just, just to point out, no, they are... <clears throat> I mean, no, you, you can't find out, Dale. No. An Auditor-General can. But when an Auditor-General audit goes in and audits, for instance, the Catholic education system in Victoria, which they did five years ago, um, 
they don't have that much time. So what they do is they do what they call cluster analysis. So they go and say, we're going to investigate the Catholic education system in Victoria and we'll do that by auditing 30 schools. Um, and from that data, then they can see, because it's like a snapshot. Yeah. Now, they get to choose the schools. The Catholic Education Office don't proffer up their you know, 30 best. It's not like some show trial in North Korea. Um, but that is the access we have to the information. You cannot. Mm. You have no right as a citizen to know where this money goes. Mm. But the Auditor General does, and they can go in and ask questions and get the information that they require. And Jean is, you know, reporting. I mean, the facts and figures she's talking about. They're not about, happy. No, not, not happy at all. Mm. It's, it's, um, and, and I think the Department of Education in Canberra, as far as actually monitoring individual schools, and there are thousands of them, they do them once every 150 years. I think we worked Jeez. out back, to, uh, back in a decade ago. That's what Ray Nelson worked out. <laughs> it might have improved, but I've no evidence that it has. The problems of accountability experienced by the Federal Department of Education have been exacerbated by the heavy reliance on this self-reporting by school systems. There are centralised bureaucracies put between them and the schools instead of targeted verification of how funds are distributed to the individual schools. Reading further and between the lines... I think the dogs can say that private school systems, and most particularly the highly centralised Catholic school system, have been allowed to self-regulate for many decades and they're reluctant to give up any of their power to distribute taxpayer funds to their schools as they see fit. Of course, what the Catholic Education Office has been doing for the last 60, 70 years is diverting funds to the building of new schools, although they've now talked Mr Andrews in, in Victoria into giving the money to build the new schools themselves. So we're, we're not only paying for the running costs, we're paying for the new schools. The new report is the latest in a long list of audit reports highlighting poor government oversight of how private school systems distribute the government funding. So that was 2019. Now we'll have a little break now and I'll come back and I'll tell you about what happened in 2016 and uh, what in fact um, others have been saying. There's nothing new about this problem. It's been going on for a long time. It's just that today we want to tell you a little bit of the history of it to show you that we are dealing with foxes watching over the hen house. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. First people, January 26 signifies the beginning of colonialism, invasion and displacement, leading to 250 years of resistance, survival and protest. 
Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Sunday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nations broadcasters will be bringing you black and deadly music, news and views from activists around the country as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, deaths in custody, truth and justice and the law of the land. We'll be crossing live to the steps of Victorian Parliament from 11am for speeches and interviews at the Melbourne Invasion Day Rally. So stay tuned to 3CR from 9am to 4pm this Sunday the 26th of January. When the day is done, down to earth and sinks the sun, along with everything that was lost and won. When the day is done, when the day is done, hope so much your race will all be run. Then you find you jump the gun. To go back where you began When the day is done When the night is cold Some get by but some get old Just to show life's not made of gold When the night is cold When the bird has flown you got no one to call your own. You got no place to call your own. When the bird has Yeah. 
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. That was Nora Jones with The Day Is Done and we're back to talking about the fox and the hen house. Uh, And let's go back to 2016. The Victorian Auditor General in that year worked out that something was wrong. They said there was significant variation in the management practices of different schools and overall they lacked policies and procedures to demonstrate the effective use of state government grants. They cannot adequately track and demonstrate how grant funds have been spent. Now this is public money and the people who are getting the public money cannot and do not and will not adequately track and demonstrate how grant funds have been spent. The recurrent grant funds to Catholic schools are reallocated to individual schools by the Catholic Education Commission, Victoria. The schools examined in the audit had an auditor's report stating state recurrent grant funds were expended for the purposes, but no school was able to actually demonstrate to the Auditor General's office that the state recurrent grant funds were spent as required. So they have their own Auditor-Generals, they self-regulate, and when the Auditor-General goes in, they actually can't answer the questions. They don't know where the money has really gone. Schools examined in their audit were mostly unable to adequately demonstrate that grants had been used as allowed under the funding agreement because these funds are given according to legislation and according to memorandums of understanding and agreements. So uh, these schools are, for all intents and purposes, not acting legally. In other words, in Victoria, there's virtually no proper accountability for the billions of dollars of public money from either state or federal sources expended by private schools. And Back to New South Wales in 2019, at the same time as there was this Auditor-General's report in Canberra, the New South Wales Treasury officials poured over the New South Wales Department of Education budgets and were very uh, concerned about what was happening to the state grants to the Catholic Education Commission. And the former New South Wales Education Minister, Andrew Adrian Piccoli, said that a document which the Parliament eventually obtained uh, from the Catholic Education Office, from Greens MP David Shoebridge, under Freedom of Information, showed that schools receiving large amounts of public money were not subject to anything like enough scrutiny. Uh, And Mr Piccoli said, they get more public money than quite a few government agencies and he's not suggesting they're doing anything wrong. Mr Piccoli himself was a good Catholic. His children went to Catholic schools. He was just concerned that the poor Catholic schools weren't getting the money that they should and the rich schools were getting that money. Um, but he said the public has a right to know what's happening inside the schools that are getting that money. Because, in fact, Mr Piccoli, when he was the Minister for Education, had that hat on his head and he was responsible as the Minister for Education for the expenditure of public money. And he couldn't trace it, so he had problems. Now, Trevor Cobald, there's nothing new about what I'm saying here. Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools has done a lot of work on all of these auditors' reports, and this is what he has to say. The fact is that private schools and systems in Australia are largely self-regulated and the history of government funding of private schools is a history of government and bureaucratic failure 
to ensure public transparency and accountability on how private school organisations spend the taxpayers' money. Some private school organisations have long arrogantly refused to meet the legislative and regulatory requirements relating to accountability for the use of taxpayer funds. They just will not do it. They're too big to fail. They're too big to actually obey the law. And the sad thing is that this is likely to continue given the standards set by the Commonwealth Gonski 2.0. If that continues, the same administrative and regulatory arrangements that have failed in the past. There's going to be no change under the coalition to the autonomy of private school systems in distributing funding to their schools and the transparency arrangements remain unchanged despite the recent report. Now, listeners, we're talking here about education funding, but we are, we thought, in a democracy. I'm not talking here about socialism. I'm not talking about left-wing politics or anything like that. I am talking about the very basics of actually living in a democracy. We're looking in horror at what's going on in America at the moment, and yet here in this country, this very, very basic principle has been eroded. In a liberal democracy, the principle of transparency and accountability for the use of taxpayer funds by school systems or schools that receive those funds should be inviolate. This should be a given. We shouldn't have, I shouldn't be talking about this. I should be able to take for granted that every penny of taxpayer money is accounted for in this country. But in Australia, the private systems of education, and especially those associated with the Catholic Church, have placed those outside and above regulation. They self-regulate, and in this sense, they are independent. They have become a state within a state, and they have become parasitic on that state. As Ray Nielsen would have said, they are a cancer in the body politic. They have become one of the most powerful lobby groups. They are one of the largest employers, one of the largest property owners, largest receivers of public largesse. And in spite of this, they are not accountable for these billions of dollars of public money. So as our media hovers over the sports funding pork barrelling, dogs remind Australian citizens that the Mackenzie fiasco is a mere storm in a teacup beside the state aid funding scandal which is undermining at least three of the cornerstones of our democracy. Accountability for expenditure of public money, a strong public education system and separation of church and state. So that's my uh, thoughts for the week uh, and that will go up on our website at www.adogs.info about the fox watching over the hens. Thank you very much, Jean. That was a press release, 125. As she said, it will be up on the website, www.adogs.info, which is actually also available on link through the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Um, We'll be back with more Dogs Program after this. I think we're going to have a book review now, thanks to Dale. Diane Ravitch has written a new book on the state of education in the United States. Um, it's kind of depressing reading, but she's a good writer, so it's, it's worth having a look at it. 
The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter. Time to get outdoors and lock in your next fitness challenge. Time to tackle Australia's original team challenge, Oxfam Trail Walker, happening in March. You and three mates will journey through 100 kilometres of bush trail within 48 hours. Teams start together, stick together and finish together. Oxfam Trail Walker is a life-changing experience and every step you take helps raise vital funds to support people living in poverty. Register your team now at trailwalker.oxfam.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Yalakut Willem Nagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, the Struggling Kings, Kihu, and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands-on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willem Nagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willem Nagi, 3CR supporters. Good afternoon and welcome back to the DOGS program. You're listening to the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools here on 3CR Community Radio. You're with Jean, Rob and Dale. And as promised, uh, I shall be reading a review of a book from Diane Ravitch, who we uh, feature a fair amount of work from her blog. She's, uh, She's, I guess you would say, on the DOGS side to an extent, and uh, she's just released a a book called Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatisation and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. And the review is by Arthur Cammons. Most of us still care about the well-being of all, now and in the future. Diane Ravitch's Slaying Goliath is a book for us. If you count yourself as a member of that group, read this book. Be prepared to be informed, angry and incredulous, but most important, hopeful. The subtitle, The Passionate Resistance to Privatisation and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools, alludes to what will move readers from despair to hope. And hope is what we need to turn away from helpless towards action, to reject selfishness and embrace unity, to forego the passivity of as best as we can expect and permit ourselves to imagine and then struggle for what is possible. 
Ravitch's first chapters, Disruption is Not Reform, and The Odious Status Quo, set the context for a thorough repudiation of the state of education in the United States. Endemic historic inequality made worse by decades of focused effort to disrupt a bedrock of American democracy, public education. Support for standardisation linked to punishment of students, teachers and schools by test scores and a determined effort to shift essential financial support from democratically governed public education to a competing private sector that includes privately governed charter schools and vouchers for private schools. The perpetrators call themselves reformers. Ravitch calls them disruptors. In her telling, that is a descriptive accusation, not a compliment. No one likes the status quo, she writes. Disruptors claim to oppose the status quo, but they are the status quo. After all, they control the levers of power in federal and state governments. They write the laws and mandates. They define the status quo. They own it. They are a somewhat disparate collective of market ideologues, self-regarding billionaires, technology titans, hedge fund managers and entrepreneurs out to make or steal a fortune at the public trough. What unites them in an unwavering, is an unwavering faith, ideas not supported by evidence, in the power of competition to drive human behaviour. Slaying Goliath upends the myth, the myths of declining achievement and the lies that teachers' unions and incompetent teachers are responsible for poor children's failure to rise to their potential or do well on standardised tests. Instead, Ravitch centres blame where it belongs, on our systemic failure to address the systemic and personally debilitating effects of poverty. I am an education, news and policy junkie. I am, I think, well informed. I've been writing about the assault on public education for over a decade. Nonetheless, I found myself stunned by Diane's explicit chronicles of the sheer depth, power and magnitude of the disruption effort. Outside of a limited circle of education policy followers, I don't think the American public is cognizant of the extent to which the disruptors have gone to bring their privatisation effort into being. For that reason alone, I hope slaying Goliath gets widespread attention. When I cracked open the book, I had no illusion that the giant names of education disruption, Gates, Broad, Walton, Koch, Zuckerberg, Zackler, Bezos, Hastings, Bloomberg, to name a few, cared deeply about equity in education or its enabling cousin, segregation. However, I was still flabbergasted by the sheer extent of their efforts, from spending millions in local school boards elections to directly funding federal policy. Ravitch asks, what do disruptors want? Spoiler alert, it is not education for broad democratic participation. It is not even high high quality education for every child. It is not a nation of critical thinkers. For many, it is venal and limiting. 
squash unions with the reach to defend the needs of working people, provide arenas for unrestrained profit-taking and extend their political and economic dominance. The book makes clear that concerns about the divisive and debilitating impacts of racial and sociological isolation are not just collateral damage, they are the enabling conditions for advancing a vision of education in the United States that the public rejects. The strict behavioural standards of disruptor-favoured charter schools are about teaching compliance, securing the promotional effect of artificially raising test scores and weeding out the perceived less deserving students. If you think truth and the evidence that supports it still matter, read Slaying Goliath. It provides plenty of material for argumentation. If you, like many Americans, find some logic in high-stakes testing, school choice and merit pay for teachers, read this book. If you are open, it will cause you to think. Everyone will be appalled by the unbelievable level of fraud, corruption, lying and refusal to look at evidence that has enabled the continuation of the charter school and testing industries and the failure of the government to control it. However, more than anything, Slaying Goliath is about hope. Ravitch chronicles and honours the courage and persistence of the resistance, the parents, the teachers who pushed back against turning classrooms into stultifying, soul-crushing test preparation mills and, whose resistors, and who resisted the imposition of creativity-killing, developmentally inappropriate standards, the unionless teachers who risked their jobs not just for well-deserved pay rises and health benefits, but more resources for children. Slaying Goliath is not naive. The biblical Goliath was, after all, a behemoth. Ravitch details the rising opposition. It is exhilarating to read. Nevertheless, with their unimaginable wealth, the giants of education disruption remain powerful and persistent in pursuit of their real goals, control and profit. However, Ravitch provides us with what David lacked, strength in numbers and unity. The mask, she tells us, is falling away. At the tru- as, as the truth comes out and groups of teachers, parents and even students score even small victories, Goliath stumbles. Ravitch makes clear, makes crystal clear that the bipartisan embrace of so-called education reform was a paid-for masquerade, a combination of ideological blinders, the arrogance of privilege and avarice. And avarice. The fight is not over by any means. However, the tide is turning, pulled by the gravitational force of unified, principled resistance. Ah, oh, thank you, Dale. There are bits in there where I can tell you're really enjoying it. Uh, you wonderful anarchist, too. Now, um, Diane Ravitch, hope is, hope is the key, which is why we're here, too, just to let the world know that there are people who still see the state school system for what it is, which is the only hope we have as a nation to educate the largest number of kids to the best standard they can. And some of the most important people in Australia are the teachers 
the teachers who are teaching our children not just how to read and write but also how to think. And we see the results of this when the young people are out in the street demanding climate change from our politicians. Indeed. Indeed. And they are the voters of the future. Truth. Um, We'll be back with more dogs after this. The Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, resilience, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival... February 20 to March 6 at Cinema Nova and venues across Melbourne. Head to transitionsfilmfestival.com for details. A 3CR supporter.
welcome back. A little piano music there, piano sonata. Um, look, we're not the only people in Australia fighting this fight, and it's good to share around the load. Um, Trevor Cobalt up there in Canberra, Save Our Schools, he does good things. And Morris Mulheron um, up in New South Wales Teachers Federation, he does some good work. And I think it's worth sharing something that he's just written lately. Um, actually, it was just at the end of last year. And it's a history lesson, and some of it, you know, Gene tells us about a great deal. But it's a nice little tight pricey of where we've come from and why we have public schools in the first place. Because it's not an accident, but I'll tell you what, it's a delicate situation that we have at the moment. The idea that public schools are even a thing here in Australia is, um, well, that can be called into question, as we've just discovered from Diane Ravitch over in the United States. Well, public schools, they're just free. We don't have those. We'll just make sure everything's private because we're all consumers living in a utopian free market democracy. But as um, Morris Mulheron says, it was a Canadian philosopher, John Ralston Saul, who argued that any society that educates more than 10% of its children in private schools can no longer call itself a democracy. Australia, of course, is well above that. We educate almost 30% of our kids in private schools. But the thing is, John Ralston Saul is right. We can no longer call ourselves a democracy. Now, one very important reason why we value public education in Australia is because it is, in fact, a democratic force. To weaken public education is to attack the very foundations of democracy, as Jean was referring to, with the children on the streets. The first teachers in Australia were, of course, Aboriginal elders who passed on their culture, language and knowledge and skills to their children. Um, any notion of a formal schooling system in Australia started in the form at the same time that the colony in New South Wales started uh, on the land of the Eora people. And that was back in 1788, around about January 28th, I think. Um, not Certainly not January 26th when the first fleet turned up, but anyway, let's not worry about dates like everyone else is this week. Um, look, Australia was a penal colony. I mean, if you don't know that, um, I'm telling you, it's probably a surprise to you the first time. It was basically a huge jail of no return. Like, you know, you take the people from England and from Ireland, you talk to them in Australia saying, you know, come on back, but we're not going to kill you. With a few um, soldiers who didn't want to go and fight the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Now, starting life as a jail meant that there was the new penal colony was worried about the moral and religious well-being of the children in the colony. Although, of course, they weren't necessarily interested in their physical well-being, just their moral and, um, re- and religious well-being. So the colony administrators thought the children would be influenced by parents who were criminals, um, and they thought that was a bad idea. So some rudimentary education was started, mainly through the work of the church with the Bible as essential, the only printed curriculum document. This is the very early days of Australia. Now, Tasmania was the first colony in the British Empire to introduce compulsory schooling. They did so in 1868. They even took away state aid to the, to the private schools in 1854. They were the first. Hmm. Yep, um, and the roll call was invented. This was followed by Queensland, which in 1869 also made schooling free. Now England, you know, the great heart of empire, at the same time had no national system of education 
Indeed, it's Australia's colonies may have been ahead in many ways. Now, Ireland, of course, did have a national system of schools, and this provided a model for the leaders of the fledgling, far-flung colonies, because the Irish national system, strangely enough, was not faith-based. Because back in those days, Catholics and Protestants really didn't like each other. And when I say really, I mean really. Like, my kids aren't sitting in a room next to your kids, because my kids are Catholic kids and your kids are Protestant kids, and we don't like each other, really. And so what they decided to do in Ireland was to say, well, we'll leave God at the front door. Um, we'll leave God at the school gate door. And it was designed to take both Protestants and Catholic children. And religion was verboten inside the school gates in Ireland because that was the condition. So the children could come together, but um, God was left outside. So therefore the arguments um, about whose God was the best um, still went on uh, very violently in many ways over many centuries in Ireland for all sorts of different reasons. But inside the school gates at this time in Ireland, that didn't happen. Absolutely fascinating system. Um, It was agreed that the value of education... The parents said, well, the value of education for my child is greater than the value of hatred that I have for my religious enemies. It was a bit more complicated than that, and the really sad thing was that the uh, Catholic... First of all, the Presbyterians from the north and then the Catholics from the south um, put the skids under that system so that by 1900 it was completely taken over by the denominationalists again. But it survived in Australia. Hmm. Victoria followed um, in the current system in 1872 with the Education Act, beginning, becoming the first part of Australia to introduce free, secular and compulsory education. Victoria was most, most likely by its gold rushes of 1850s and 60s. The government wanted to take its newfound wealth and use it to turn Victoria into a successful industrial colony. And for this they needed educated, literate, reading and writing workforce. No, but the origin of public education in Australia as we know it is really down that there's a New South Wales story uh, with the pivotal player, then, then Premier of New South Wales, a bloke called Henry Parks. Again, picking up on the notion of moral education, he argued how much better to teach the child than to punish the hardened youth, how much cheaper to provide schools than to build jails, how much more creditable to us as a community to have a long roll of schoolmasters than a long list of jailers and turnkeys. Parks was not without his religious prejudices, of course. He referred to Catholic Irish as jabbering baboons. But even so, Parks treated all, religious, all religions equally and withdrew all funding from all church schools in 1882. Along with William Wilkins, the first head of the fledgling Department of Education, Parks pushed for a rigorous system of primary schools that were also free, secular and compulsory. Now, his achievement in the Public Education Act of 1880, which made schooling compulsory for children from the ages of 6 to 14. This is one of the world's first commitments to ensuring that education of young people was the responsibility, not of the parents, but of everyone. Society, we can call it, but the answer is, who's responsible for a child's education? We all are. Through the public treasury, through our taxes. Mm. So, in a nutshell, taxes are for a the compulsory education group. system for all children is a fairly modern and recent development. It's no older than 150 years. And that it's, a, it's a long time we consider that human society 
Uh, it's not a long time, considering that human society is many tens of thousands of years old. Mm. And so we as Australia were radical in this regard and with leaders. Now, there's more I could say, but I can't, I don't really want to because I've got something better to talk about, quite frankly. I'm going to talk about, just briefly, a really great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Oh, look, a great state school this week. I might bet around the bushes in a little, little, little island. Australia has two islands, the North Island and the South Island. It's in the South Island. It's in a really rough part of the South Island. I don't know if you know Hobart all that well, but you know, there's a reason why they have a ferry going to Mona. That's to skirt around all the rough bits. And right in the middle of those rough bits is a little school called Ogilvy. Mm. It only takes girls. Literally, it only takes a girls' school. It's a state school, it's a girls' school. It goes way a long way back. Basically, I will tell you, 80% of the kids that go to this school are in the lowest, lowest sort of half of Australians in terms of, um, in terms of their um, socioeconomic state, the year value, and 42% come from the poorest families. Gee, they do good, though. Oh, they do good. Like, when it comes to marks, these girls are right on the money. They're above average for, for their cohort from across Australia. There's no doubt about it. And yeah, and they don't stimp on what they learn too. English, math, science, history, geography, civics and citizenship, design and data technology, health and physical education, language and of course all of the arts. Oh, they want some of them up at the uh, at the Elizabeth Matric College, won't they? They indeed, make terrific students when they arrive there, they as do, I recall. They do indeed. Ogilvy students have a great success at state winners in robotics and their state and national winners in the Tournament of Minds and the National History Challenge. These girls are doing an amazing job. And do you know, imagine how long they've been doing this for. Ogilvy High School has been there for well over a century. It's a tradition. Now, this is a school right in the middle of the hardest, the roughest part of, st- part of town. Like I've, I've, I can tell you from personal experience, I've been beaten up around the corner from this school. <laughs> Quite frankly, no question about it, I've been beaten up. And that's okay, I've got a few more mates and we went back and um, made amends, which is what you do when you're young. Um, Ogilvy High School in Newtown, Tasmania, is an amazing place, and it's full of girls that do extraordinary things. How much does it cost? How much does it cost to do these extraordinary things with these really poor girls in the poorest part of Tasmania, really? Um, 15000 Right on the money. How? Bargain. Bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because this is the sort of place where, yeah, private schools fear to tread... You've been listening to the Dogs Program. I'd like to tell you more about Ogilvy. It's an amazing thing, and I might do um, at some some point in the future. But by definition, it is a great state school. And by happenstance, it is our great state school of the week. And um, we've had, if you're interested in anything we've been doing this week, um, just get in touch with us at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Or you can go to the 3CR website, that's 3cr.org.au. So in particular, I recommend going back and having listened to what Dale was saying about that book. Um, is it Slaying Goliath, I think it was, wasn't it, Dale? Yes. That's right. Slaying Goliath, if you're interested in that, and I, I'm going to go back and have a listen myself. It does sound interesting. Mm. And please get in touch. But until next week, bye for now.
Sir. Mm-hmm. 